Thanks for your flexibility, everybody. Good morning. It's great to see everybody. Um, we are um, in this little just conversation about Ecclesiastes, and I share with you uh, last week that we're going to take a chunk, talk about it, and then uh, hit another chunk. And so we just feel like this is a good moment for us as a church to do this. Um, in a little while, later on, we're going to actually take communion. Uh, Dan's prepared to teach, uh, to lead us through communion. So um, if you have a moment, like maybe during, uh, right after breakout or whatever, grab some crackers or whatever you need for that, but that's down the road. And then later on, we're, I have a few announcements, uh, a couple uh, announcements in regards to um, gathering in person again and um, some student ministry stuff. So hang in there for that. Um, who's familiar with C.S. Lewis? Raise your hand. Right on. Um, C.S. Lewis, uh, for those of you who don't know, he is a 20th century writer, Christian writer. Uh, he was a skeptic about Jesus for many years um, and uh, came, to, came to know Jesus um, through his skepticism, through his uh, wondering and pondering and Incredible writer, professor, uh, wrote a number of books, including Mere Christianity. He wrote um, the uh, Narnia series. Uh, many of you are familiar with the, the Chronicles of Narnia and that whole series. Late in life, he was married for a brief time to a woman he loved so much, and then she passed away. And he wrote a book, I mean, this is a famous author, and he wrote a book under a pseudonym, meaning he did not use his own name. And he didn't use his own name because so many people had his books stacked up on their shelves. They had Mere Christianity, you know, all the Narnia series, a whole bunch of different things. And the book he wrote was just so brutally honest and so heavy with cynicism that he felt like his regular readers were not ready for it. And so he published this book. It's called A Grief Observed. And he published it under a pseudonym. And it wasn't revealed that C.S. Lewis was the author. Um, instead, it was N.W. Clerk. Um, and it wasn't revealed that he was the author until after his death. And I find that really interesting because it's much like Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesiastes has this brutally honest cynicism in it. Um, and I've been reading a book recently uh, by an author named Zach Eswine, and he's been writing about, he wrote about Ecclesiastes. And he says, he says this in a quote, he says, as a reader, you will have to start off with meaningless and wade through 12 chapters of, of, of tension, poetry, proverbs, unanswered questions unsettling speech, speech and intimate language before arriving at the point he wants to make. Because of this approach, in order to get the truth he wants us to see, we have to be willing to take a look at the things that we do not like. And that's pretty much what we're in right now. We're in this, this second part of chapter one and going into chapter two, and this language is about meaninglessness and and everything under the heavens. Remember, that's a theme in this. 
and he applies himself to wisdom. That's like his first test. His first test is wisdom. He's like, maybe wisdom will give me meaning. Maybe understanding how life works and the complexities and, and uh, maybe finding a formula or an answer, maybe that will bring me meaning. And what's interesting in all the talk we're in right now about a vaccine for this COVID virus, um, it's interesting that Ecclesiastes is somewhat like a, a vaccine in the sense that it gives us a dose of what bothers us in life. And, it, and, it, and like a vaccine does, it gives us a little bit to, uh, to kind of make our bodies overcome um, the virus itself. And, and, and it's kind of disturbing and it's unsettling. And, and the problem is, is if we look at this uh, book with like, um, uh, maybe we just need get, to get information from it to learn something and walk differently, um, that's not going to do it. Um, the, the, the author here, the teacher, he starts out with this theory on wisdom. He says that, let's test this out. Does wisdom hold up and can it give me a meaningful life? And it, meaning like if you can read all the classics and, and, and get education and knowledge, will it fill the hole? Will it curb the ache? And, and basically he's asking, well, will this knowledge get me somewhere? And the answer is yes, but ultimately no. Like, yes, it will for the short term. Um, it will help you out some in life, but ultimately, no. It won't give you the meaning. And he says, he says a number of times in different versions, it says, I said in my heart, or I looked in my heart, or I applied this to my heart. And the author is really kind of getting at this idea of emotion. Like he's He's wrestling with his emotions is what he's doing. He's like, what happens in me inside? What, what happens in me? And, you know, this, what collapses inside of me? And so first thing I really want to talk about is the problem with wisdom, the problem of wisdom, because wisdom is this thing that you and I use to try to make sense of things that are complex and complicated. Um, and it's a really, it's a cherished human value. I mean, we're told to look for wisdom, to long for wisdom. Proverbs tells us to look for wisdom and long for wisdom. And some of us are better than others at this, at wisdom. A um, number of months ago, I was on a ride-along with a police officer, and he told me the story of a woman that he arrested for a DUI. And he brought this woman to the station and he, um, they did the fingerprint thing and the whole deal. And um, then he said, I need to call someone to have them pick you up. And she said, well, call my husband. So he calls the husband of this woman and says, hey, we picked your wife up for DUI. She's here at the station. You can come pick her up um, whenever you can. The husband shows up at the station and he's drunk too. And they gave him a roadside sobriety test right there in the lobby of the police station and arrested him for DUI. And he, he told me the story and then he said at the end of it, he says, we don't catch the smart ones. And it was like this interesting line, like in, in our time, like all of us are trying to 
figure out wisdom. And some of us are better at wisdom than others. And we all at some level are pursuing wisdom. And the teacher says that God gave this pursuit of wisdom to human beings to be busy with. And he, said, he goes on to say, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. And, and the reality is all of us try to play the game of wisdom. And we have this deep desire to make sense of life and to make sense of situations. But it's, it's an unhappy business, he says, because for with much wisdom comes, comes much sorrow. And the more knowledge we have, the more grief we'll have, he says. And he says, while it has promises, wisdom does, it doesn't satisfy our need for meaning in life. And it falls short. And in our culture, it seems like that's the opposite case, right? We're, we're told that knowledge is power. Uh, the quick access that we have to information, uh, the quicker the access, the better. And then in verse 12, of chapter two, he says this, now I began a study of the comparative virtues of wisdom and folly. And anyone else would come to the same conclusion I did, that wisdom is of more value than foolishness, just as light is better than darkness. For the wise man sees while the fool is blind. And yet I noticed that there was one thing that happened to wise and foolish alike. Just as the fool will die, so will I. So basically he says this, you can, you, can, you can look for wisdom and it will benefit you, but in the end, you're going to die. I mean, I mean, he just says at the end, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't fix the ending. It doesn't fix the ending for any of us. Sure, there's a short range game, but it's just a short range game. And uh, the last verse, he says, so now I hate life because it is all so irrational. All is foolishness chasing the wind. And this is where I really want to land today. This idea and the point I'm trying to make here is that we have a reasonable sadness in life. That the author here, the teacher, is actually expressing that he's chasing this thing, this wisdom to get meaning. But ultimately, it just leaves, leaves him sorrowful and sad. And the thing is, is that I've noticed in my life, and maybe you've noticed this too in yours, that this is something we try to resist. We try to resist sorrow and sadness. And we think wisdom will help us do it or other things. Um, some of us go to escapism, some of us have dabbled in addiction, some of us go to be entertained or encouraged. Some of us even get angry as, a, as an escape of sorrow and sadness. I realized that many years ago that part of my issue with anger was because of a, a deeper sadness inside of me. Some of you are big fans of the show This Is Us. And, um, you know, every single time I hear people talking about that show, it just sounds awful to me because it's just like tragedies and crying and everybody just loves this show. And they keep saying, Ryan, you need to watch this show. This is us. It's so addicting. And I'm like, I don't want to have anything to do with that show. It sounds like really hard. And I don't, <laughs> I don't want to. 
I don't want to get into it. And what I realized is that uh, that's like an issue I have. I, I try to avoid sad things. And for some people, especially followers of Jesus, there's this really weird, it's really weird tension about sadness and depression. And for some, it feels unfaithful to be sad and depressed and a follower of Jesus. But the problem is, is the, if you look at the whole framework of scripture, sadness and sorrow is part of it. It's just part of what we experience. As the writer of Ecclesiastes says, under the sun. And this idea that like a chest heaving darkness is, is actually more sane and faithful to God than pretending to be happy. There was a famous preacher named Charles Hayden Spurgeon. He was an English preacher. He was well-loved all over England. In fact, they used to publish his Sunday sermon in the newspaper on Mondays. He would do, he would preach literally every day. He would do a lunch hour sermon for businessmen in London. But Charles Hayden Spurgeon struggled deeply with sadness and depression. His wife worried about him all the time. And he wrote a number of, of really encouraging things for people who struggle. And it came out of his sadness and out of his sorrow. One of the quotes he has is, contrary to what some people tell us, sadness is neither a sign of laziness or a sin, neither negative thinking nor weakness. And he, there's this great book out there called Spurgeon's Sorrows. I would encourage you to pick it up if you um, would like to read further. Um, but in it, he talks about this idea that in this fallen world, sadness is an act of sanity. Are tears the testimony of the same? And what I think he's really getting at is, I think in a lot of American churches, there's more room um, there's less room for sadness in church than there is really in scripture. If you read scripture, if you, if you really take, take it at the whole, there's, there's so much room in there to be frustrated and sad and depressed and angry and, and, and it's feeling a sense of, uh, of meaningless and, and hopelessness. A few weeks ago, we talked about lament. I know for some of you that was that was helpful, but what's interesting is is that the church has a long history, a rich history, in lament, in learning how to lament and complain to God. And um, we have heroes of faith. We have Augustine and, and Luther and Spurgeon and on and on and on people who have written about their sorrow and their sadness. We have hymns written by a guy named William Cooper. If you ever want to look up hymns by William Cooper and read those or hear those. We have figures in scripture like David and Elijah and Mary and Paul. I've been on a journey learning how sadness is a part of my life over the last few years. And um, 
it can't, I remember one time a couple years ago, I had a friend of mine that kind of called me out. He says, he said, hey, it seems like you are not able to emotionally reach out like you used to. And he was right. I was not really sure what to do with sadness in my life. I mean, I'm an Enneagram seven, so I'm supposed to basically act like a golden retriever all the time. But the reality is, is that there are things in me that I don't know why there's sadness there and it can be unsettling. And the teacher here in Ecclesiastes is basically surprised that all this toil in his life leads to nothing and it leads to sorrow and it leads to sadness. And he's th saying to himself, there's ought to be something here. There's got to be something that I can grab onto here. The author I quoted earlier, Zach Eswine, he's, he wrote a book called Re uh, Recovery of Eden. And it's about Ecclesiastes. And his point is this, you, you could read the whole Bible to get something out of it, to like learn new information. But if you read Ecclesiastes that way, it will frustrate you. He said, instead, read Ecclesiastes, a better framework is to read Ecclesiastes as a lament. As a, men, a lament of what we have lost as human beings a lament of what we originally had. And, and it's this longing, okay, for what was meant to be, but is not. What was meant to be, we see in the creation account, that life and fullness and God's presence dwelling with us all the time, and that our toil and our work actually had meaning, actually pushed things forward. It was meaningful, it was good, and, and God stepped back and he rested. We talked about Sabbath a number of weeks back. And he said, this is very good. And Zach Eswine said in his book, he says, wisdom teaches us that tears at their best pay tribute to something lost that was once cherished and it was wise to cherish it. So, it's an empty chair at a holiday meal, right? It's the mundane in our work. It is the injustice we see and experience around us. But here's the thing. Here's what I'm learning. Sometimes my aversion, okay, to sadness is an attempt to be okay with how the world is right now. And I want to avoid sadness, and by avoiding the sadness, avoiding the pain of all the things we see around us, I'm actually trying to be okay with it. And God doesn't want us to be okay with it. He wants us to go through the sadness. He wants us to ache a bit, because God doesn't want us to forget Eden. God does not want us to forget what we had and what he's bringing forth again one day right and it's like it's like this idea um that i fall into all the time it, if this is all there is it's enough and god's saying no this isn't all there is 
Like, don't be okay with the hamster wheel of life. Don't be okay with corruption and death. Don't be okay with okay. And Ecclesiastes calls us to find the time to sit in silence with this, to wrestle with this. And church, I get it. It's like so uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable, but there's wisdom in doing this. And so what we're going to do really quick is we're going to jump into breakouts. We're going to talk a little bit about what the kids are up to and share a few things together. I want to encourage you to be brave on this. <laughs> you probably want to check out at the moment. Don't. We're going to come back. I got a little bit more, and then we're going to take communion, okay? And then I have some announcements. So we're going to head to breakout, all right? Let me, let me wrap up a little bit here. The, the third thing I want to say as we finish, as we head towards communion, is that God is a God of faithful presence. All over scripture, the psalmists, David, Jonah, Joe, Paul, in, in a moment, he, he talked about despairing of his life. And then we have this picture of Jesus in the garden. And Jesus says, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. And he goes on to say, Father, take this cup. And what's really interesting about that is at the moment that Jesus felt so alone, so much this void of aloneness, and he felt all these emotions, he knew resurrection was coming. Like Jesus actually knew resurrection was coming, and yet he experienced all those emotions, all that despair that you and I do. And so that's why the, the, the beauty of this story is don't avoid sorrow. Don't try to escape it and hide it and pretend it's not there. Enter it. Because that's actually the place where God is with us. God actually shows up in those moments with us if we're, if we're ready to, to experience his presence. And there is depth to sorrow and pain. But there's not depth if we're minimizing it or covering it up. So really kind of where I want to head with this is this idea that relief comes through sadness, that wisdom comes through sadness not separating ourselves from it. And we need a recovery of Eden. We need to be tethered to uh, what Eden is, was, what we were supposed to have in Eden and what God is going to be doing in the future. And this idea of walking with the Lord in the cool of the afternoon is God's presence. It's God with us, Emmanuel. And so Ecclesiastes is kind of like a, a vaccine for the cliches of life, right? These, these little cliches that, that help us just kind of get through. Uh, Ecclesiastes is this idea of this yearning for something that tastes better. And so the reality is if you and I are just okay with the world, we won't really, really be able to experience Christ. If we're just okay with things, if we just brush things off as that's how it is, without really entering the sadness and the sorrow of it, we're never going to really experience Christ.
so here's my encouragement for you um, is try to enter that. Try to, try to get alone for 15 minutes. Try to grieve and be sad. Try to, try to see the things in life that, that bring, that, that show you in a sense this meaninglessness and this sorrow and, and embrace it. And, and that is where God will meet you. So I just want to pray this morning, and then I'm going to turn it over to Dan, and he's going to lead us in communion together. Father, we're just, we're just trying to be as honest and authentic as we can with our lives. And it's in this way that we, that we experience you, that we experience everything you have for us. God, we try to figure out life with wisdom and we try to uh, gain knowledge and, and push ahead and all these things. But at the end of the day, what you really want us to yearn for is the life that you intended us to have and the life that you will one day give us. And that's where you are. So God, give us the courage to face the sorrow in our life. Give us the courage to reach out to each other in the midst of that sorrow, that we can bear with each other, that we can walk with each other, that we can encourage each other. Because that's part of what your faithful presence is. Community. So God, give us the, the grace and the, the strength to push into that. We pray these things in your name. Amen.